Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Chip, your host for New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. David Rennie, who's the researcher for the 525 Alumni of Achievement Project at the University of Aberdeen, where he was previously an academic writing skills advisor. We will be discussing his new book, American Writers in World War I, published, I think, less than a year ago, by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rennie. Well, thanks very much, Ryan, and thank you for inviting me. So first off, let's talk about this cover, um, this very, very striking cover um, on your book, and then we'll dive into the the prompts. Sure. Well, when it came to designing the cover, uh, I was looking for an image that would be, like you say, striking, but also apt and, and then at the same time inexpensive. And uh, yeah, the American Library Association's fundraising campaign posters from World War One were out of copyright at the time we were looking into this, and so they seemed like a good place to look. And we adapted one by the artist John E. Sheridan, uh, where we have this, you know, this soldier standing aloft with a hardback book in his hand. And in the original, the soldier is saying, uh, "Hey, fellows, your money." brings the book we need when we want it so it's part of a you know a kind of marketing campaign for the american library association but you know that was just perfect we've got a strong image uniting the armed forces and literature and um so we just you know replaced the title um replaced the text with the title um but the original poster was actually quite hideous to be honest it had uh, an orange and gray background um which was yeah, wasn't very easy on the eye. So I, I asked if they could, um, you know, edit it so it looked more American, you know, red, white, and blue, and uh, that also gave us the nice red background, which is um, you know, suggestive of war. So I think that worked out reasonably well. So let's let's start. What roles did the Library War Service, uh, the Committee on Public Information's Division of Syndicate Features, and author financial impulses play in creating World War I literary cultures? You know, you can address issues like censorship, the war books boom, mass markets for periodicals, advertisements, and that, that mass consumption of so-called literature of quality. Yeah. Um, well, the the Library War Service was a division of the American Library Association, and I mean their mission was really just to to collect books and funds so that they could have you know libraries in, in training camps. But I suppose that's a, an indication of how um, you know, mass media was was already affecting the dissemination of work uh, during the literary works during the war. But when you add that to all the other things that are going on there, you've got this morass of influences shaping literary production. You know, there's the, the CPI, the Committee on Public Information, with its division of syndicate features. They are actively involving writers and in trying to write propaganda. They've got the, the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act, which you know makes it illegal to defame the war effort. Um, 
certain books are banned, like Ellen Lamott's The Backwash of War, and you know even um, arrests were made of you know people like Floyd Dell and Max Eastman, the masses editors. So it's quite serious stuff happening. But then on the other side, at the level of the publishing industry itself, lots of changes were happening as well. There was uh, an increase in circulation of, of mass market magazines. So writers were able to reach greater audiences. But what was fueling this sort of um, acceleration or expansion of, of periodicals was advertising. Now, that was where the money was coming from. So offers have got a potentially larger audience to reach. But alongside that, their, their works are commodities that are being advertised as well. And, and how do you how do you do that? How do you advertise a book that might take someone you know days or weeks to read? They've got seconds, you know, of attention as they they they, they flick through you know the pages of a magazine. And one way that publishers dealt with this was to try and market literature as possessing quality. So it's not improvement. You know, it's not some casual um, activity for your for your leisure time. It's something that will improve. The, the reader as well. And this is what Catherine Turner calls literature of quality. So we're not, we're not trying to sell you a cheap frill. We're trying to um, appeal to your, um, you know, to your desire for self-improvement and betterment. And allied to that emphasis on quality, there's also a necessary emphasis on respectability. Um, you know, publishing houses have their reputation to protect as well. And so, you know, swearing um, references to sexual intercourse or the use of contraceptives or you know things that happen in war um, sometimes are, are are the very things that publishers would be reluctant to let um, or you know to let through into print so there's all these different things happening that are shaping how writers can write about the war and this is before we get to the level of the writer with their pen and paper or their typewriter so before we even get to the author's mind and, and the war, there's this whole complex of forces shaping the content and dissemination of literature. And I think that's that's very important to bear in mind because it suggests that the connections between war and writing are extremely complex and it should maybe make us think a little bit more before we try and um, try and talk about the war in terms of, or war writing in terms of reflecting you know, one dominant um, emotion or viewpoint. Let's talk about some of the writers. What were the impulses for author Edith Wharton's heterogeneous but decidedly idyllic observations of wartime France and Scribner's magazine? And what were her self-reflective meta-narrative comments on the relationship between language and perception? Uh, further, how did these observations compare with her later work, like when she's entangled with the Red Cross and then after the war, her kind of mocking of romanticized war narratives? Hmm. Well, I think initially Wharton kind of responds in a, a way that you would expect from someone like, like Edith Wharton. And by 1914, Wharton is affluent, middle-aged, well-connected. She's a Francophile. She lives in France and she's a highly accomplished prose stylist. But she's also a professional writer. And so she has a kind of trained sense of what her audience will appreciate and the, the earliest writing she undertakes is to write accounts of her tours of the, the front or areas 
around the front. Um, and she sent those back to Scribner's and they are published as Fighting France in 1915. And so she's, I think she's bearing in mind that her audience will want particular things. They want news and impressions from the war zone, but it's also part travelogue. You know, there are descriptions of French topography and, and pleasant lunches and gardens and things like that, as well as well-known Parisian locations like, you know, the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe and so on. So I think Wharton probably knows that her audience will appreciate um, being able to to read about these locations what they'll recognise because they are, you know, they're to a certain degree, they're well-read and cultured. But there's also a sense of uncertainty here in the in those those early pieces, as if they, to say that the war can't be distilled into a single evaluative stance. And I mean, you could say that about war uh, at any time, but I think that's partly because things are moving so quickly in 1915 and, and the war and expectations of it are moving as well. In 1914, there had been hopes that there would be, you know, a short conflict, but you know, into 1915, it's obvious that's not going to be the case. And so Wharton, you know, she makes comments like, uh, the war's influence has come to exist of many separate rays. And reflecting back on, you know, the early months of the war, she writes that the nation seemed to be reading a great poem on war rather than facing its realities. So it's almost as if the war is like an abstract offstage idea at this, at this point. But as the war goes on, there are more you know, concrete um, signs of its destruction that you know, people like like Wharton have to confront. Um, and you know, one one example of that would be the the huge philanthropic efforts that Wharton undertook. Um, she was at the centre of it all, raising money, coordinating things, and it, it was really really quite exhausting. It took a big toll on her her health. But more than that, bereavement was something that that kept happening to Borden. She lost close friends. Her footman, Henri, uh, her cousin, Newbolt, Rhinelander. And this starts to shape, I think, her her writing that happens um, during the war. Her novelette, The Marne, and French Ways and Their Meaning, which is a collection of essays. These are overtly propagandistic in in, in ways. Um, But post-war Wharton recovers a more nuanced perspective. Uh, I don't know if we'd, we'd see... We'd say she mocks romanticized narratives, but we certainly see her mocking the the petty self-interestedness of upper class volunteer efforts in in stories like the refugees and writing a war story. And in her novel, A Son at the Front, a retrospective viewpoint emerges which accommodates idealism, but also recognizes its limitations. You know, the the, the young uh, George Campton, he wants to serve in the war. His father, John, who's a painter, although he's paternally concerned and he, he tries to prevent his son from you know, ending up with a dangerous post, he feels there's something ignoble about avoiding war service, but he feel, feels conflicted himself about, as an artist, you know, should he be doing anything? Can he do anything? Um, and at one point he believes that he can. But then as his son dies, he, you know, he then reflects on all these feelings, and then he, he gets to the point where he grins at the thought he'd once believed in the regenerative power of war. So, although she doesn't completely repudiate heroism, Wharton um, Wharton doesn't doesn't quite go as far as to saying there's no place for it as well. It's 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 a complex and balanced look at the war in uh, A Son at the Front, which is 
a, a really um, a really fine novel, I think. Um, but although she doesn't fit into that sort of narrative of disenchantment that's popularly associated with the war, she absolutely does consistently have a go at self-aggrandizing behaviour and inefficiency amongst I mean, mainly people like senior Red Cross officials and aristocrats who are um, getting involved in a very shallow sense with the war effort by pouring tea, you know, once a week in a in a hospital and, and calling that work. So, at some level, she she does actually have more in common with writers like Hemingway and Dos Passos, who are, you know, constantly critical of of the, the people that are sort of running the show, as it were. So moving on, please compare and contrast the prose aesthetics, emotional emphases, and narratorial perspectives of collections authored by Ellen Lamott and Mary Borden, specifically the backwash, the 1916 backwash of war and uh, the 1917, or I guess it was published in 1929, uh, Forbidden Zone. How did both of these collections foreground the multidimensional nature of the conflict in spatial perspectives and linguistic communication and even in sexuality? Well, The Backwash of War, which is I think one of the most powerful books to come out of World War One, mingles stark realism along with a kind of wry critique of the noble forces supposedly behind the war. Uh, the Forbidden Zone, it has its shade of, of realism, but it, it also delves into you know observation of you know the, the, the sunset and, and things like that. And there's quite a lot of unorthodox imagery and that particular book also has poems as well as prose vignettes um, but you know aside from those obvious differences um, there's also a different difference in emphasis about war and and soldiers and and how to conceive what's happening and you, you see that in their idiosyncratic treatment of the same events that Lamont and Borden in case anyone doesn't know worked alongside each other at the same hospital in World War One. so their collections overlap sometimes in terms of content and one one example of this is when a suicide case comes on to the ward an attempted suicide that has to be nursed back to health so that he can face a firing squad uh, Lamotte deals with this in her story Heroes and Borden touches on it in Rosa in Borden's take on it there, there's a soldier lying there in a state of delirium he calls out um, Rosa in his um, in his kind of befuddled state. Um, and so for, for Borden, this is not despair brought around by his by what he's done or by the war. It's, as she sees it, despair because his relationship with this Rosa has broken down in some regard. So she's kind of humanising this man's suffering. Lamotte uh, doesn't have any time for this kind of thing. I mean, she, she writes, um, you know, wherein lay the difference nursing men back to health to be patched up and returned to the trenches, or a man to be patched up, court-martialed and shot. So there's quite a, a powerful difference there. Um, in terms of multidimensionality, this, this again is, is different, although in a way they make similar observations. In the final section of the backwash of war, an incident, there's a, a child pedalling a, a bicycle and it, cl- it collides off a horse pulling a French um, officer towards the Ministry of War in Paris. Now, all of this gathers its significance from its location. It's next to the, the statue of Claude Chappé, uh, where the, the Rue du Bac meets the Boulevard Saint-Germain. And, you know, Lamotte writes that um, the statue of Chappé towers over this, this traffic incident 
Um, and this is quite important, although she doesn't make a big deal of it in the the story itself. I think it says a lot about, about writing about war. Because during the French Revolution, Chappé, he designed a system of long distance communications where movable wooden arms you know, that would be positioned on top of towers or steeples were used to um, relay information via semaphore. And during you know the the Napoleonic Wars, these were used to to convey you know orders about troop movements and maneuvers and things like that. But the system had a, a drawback. Obviously, it was exposed to everybody, so encrypted semaphore codes had to be used. And you know the system was slow. If it was foggy, it wouldn't work, and so on. But using this at uh, at the end of the backwash of war, I think allows Lamotte to kind of deftly suggest an element of doubt about the propensity of her writing to, to fully express war. She likes Chappé's Towers, which successfully bridged you know, previously untried boundaries of, of, of uh, communication. Lamotte faced the difficulties of you know, her own representational trial that hadn't been addressed before, writing about you know, World War I. So I think in the backwash of war, although she did you know, very successfully and powerfully write about uh, war, that that touch at the end just raises it up a level by by just acknowledging uh, perhaps a, a sense of doubt about her own her own writing. Uh, Lamont also throws in quite gory uh, eyeball or ocular imagery, um, you know, to sort of I suppose symbolise the soldier's gaze of what's happening. There's a scene where there's a soldier Marius, he's lying. Um, you know, with his, his eyes flashing up at the stretcher bearers, and he accuses them of, you know, using their influence to avoid frontline service, and even accuses them of volunteering to to garner information to write a book. Uh, and this accusation obviously implicates Lamotte because, you know, she's she's there, um, and then after her her exit from from the front in 1916, she publishes a book. So, you know, different ways of um, showing the different perspectives involved. Borden, quite different. Um, she experiments with aerial perspective. Um, and there, there, there's quite a lot of dynamic spatial perspective in that book. Um, and Borden's poem, The Hill, for instance, begins, you know, from the hill, I look down on the beautiful, the gorgeous, the superhuman, the monstrous landscape of the superb, exulting war. And here we have Borden. So he, she's, she's a healer. She's a participant. She's a nurse. She's on the ground. But she's also an author looking down on this, not necessarily with a greater understanding of what's happening, but I think she might be ironically using supposed authorial omniscience to you know to the same time suggest the limitations of what she can achieve and and also the incomprehensibility of war as a result. Please briefly address Lamotte's uh, post-war writings on China and the opium trade, especially in the context of the legacies of World War I and British imperialism. Similarly, please discuss Borden's attempts, and I guess her impulses for narrating, um, sort of, and to demonstrate how war can both reinvigorate and decimate human lives. In the 1916 Romantic Woman and the post-war Jane R. Stranger, as well as Sarah Gay. In addition to addressing how the 1929 stock market crash and World War II reconfigured and sustained Borden's memories of World War One. Sure. So in the summer of 1916, Lamotte actually left the the Western Front and she embarked on a new career, raising awareness of the injustices in the international opium market. 
But she she maintains her focus in in this phase on the gap between the patriotic and ideological rhetoric propagated by the countries involved in the war and the actual experiences of those under their rule. Uh, you know, while the war in Europe is is being fought against expansionist Germany, Lamotte reminds the reader that the the triple entente of, of Britain, France and Russia still control vast areas of China as part of their own empires. According to the figure she provides in Peking Dust, which is a 1919 account of her time in the Far East, France owns 3.4% of the Chinese Republic and Britain controls 27.8%. So here, Lamotte's understanding of, of war, which animated the backwash of war as a force of you know, indiscriminate heart and discrimination, but, but also um, you know, official hypocrisy, is still in evidence in Peking Dust, but it reaches a more international, global configuration. And she has a quite powerful image um, to express this. She writes that the structure of civilization that Europe has erected for itself is imposing and beautiful. Uh, we in America you know, see this facade as being magnificent and superb, but there's a backside to the structures, again, continuing the imagery from the backwash of war. And seen from the Orient, it's not imposing at all. The sweepings and refuse of Western civilization and morality are dumped out upon the Orient where they do not show. And one of my, my key goals in looking at the entire careers of authors is to challenge interpretations which suggest that one way of reading one text sums up a writer's reaction to war. And Lamotte is kind of only really known for the backwash of war, but we can see that she was, you know, she was soon writing very different uh, material. And this is even more so the case with Borden. Borden's really known for The Forbidden Zone, but she was a prolific novelist. She produced some 20 book-length pieces of fiction, several of which reference World War I in some manner. And The Forbidden Zone is well, the most popular, but it's also, weirdly, the least characteristic of her works. In her other novels, the modernist, the modernist characteristics of The Forbidden Zone are, are gone. There's no fragmentation or juxtaposed perspectives or um, unorthodox imagery. But also, human relationships, which are completely absent from the Forbidden Zone, feature constantly. Uh, and, and the Romantic Woman, for instance, which weirdly was actually written while Lamotte, um, well, Borden was at the front, right, is completely different from the Forbidden Zone. In this work, we have uh, Joan Fairfax and her husband, Captain Binky Dawkins, an aristocratic British cavalry officer. And despite the destruction the war brings elsewhere, the war benefits their marriage. Uh, you know, Joan comments that the the war actually makes us friends. It made us friends, Binky and me. And this happens in other novels. Um, in Jane Our Stranger and Sarah Gay, the war reveals how much certain characters need each other, or perhaps how much they need other, more fulfilling relationships. And in these works, there's also exploration of the degree of exhilaration that comes from wartime medical work, which may contrast with a character's anodyne pre-war domestic existence. And this is these human relationships, um, you know, the existence of them might, might surprise readers who have only read The Forbidden Zone. And in another twist to the tale, in 1929, Borden, who was, um, was independently wealthy, suffered a huge financial setback when her brother, John, 
um, had been handling her investments and had lost a huge sum of money in, in the crash. But at the same time as that, the war books boom, uh, so-called war books boom is happening. You have people like Ernest Hemingway publishing A Farewell to Arms and Robert Graves publishing Goodbye to All That. And perhaps Borden thought, well, this is a good time to try and finally get The Forbidden Zone into print. Because as you alluded to earlier, she got to pretty close in 1917. Collins were interested in it. They wanted certain changes or uh, you know, censorship um, emendations enacted, but she she resisted it. And it wasn't, you know, I don't, I don't know if she tried after 1917, but certainly she did um, bring it out in 1929. So not only is the Forbidden Zone a bit of, uh, a bit of a rarity in her overall um, output, there, there's a good chance that it would never have been published if it hadn't been for the, the financial dire straits she was in um, at that point in her life. And as I said, Borden had a long career and she continued to reflect on the war as she um, as she aged. And the Black Virgin, her 1937 novel, um, is about a group of aristocrats who post-war are no longer independently wealthy. You know, they, they can't live off their inherited income anyway. And these people are described as being leftovers of a pre-war period caught between two worlds. The Black Virgin, by the way, is a, an excellent novel, despite its um, weird name, which is it's actually about an ornament that's in this country house where all the characters congregate um, for, for the Christmas holidays. I've always been disappointed by that title because it's, it's such a good novel. But um, moving on, uh, during World War II, Borden was once again involved in medical care. Um, she commanded the Hatfield Spears Ambulance Service in the Loire and then latterly in the Middle East and Africa. In her memoir, Borden claims that her memories of World War I nursing made her passionately committed to, to have a similar role in, in World War II. And in France, she actually she revisited some of the terrain she saw in World War I. And she, she recalls being at Dunkirk in World War I. She thinks of her younger self there. Uh, you know, many, many years, obviously, before the, the great evacuation took place in 1914. And she writes, uh, you know, no glimmer shone back out of the future to my tiny present to reveal what that beach was to witness of disaster and heroism. So as, as she she gets older, you know, reflections of the war become overlaid with, with subsequent memories. And that's, you know, memories, uh, particularly memory over long periods of time is, um, is another important influence in how my authors reflect on the war. So let's talk about uh, Thomas Boyd, who I'm somewhat familiar with. How did gas-injured veteran Thomas Boyd's 1923 Through the, the Wheat explore the quote-unquote trauma of war via multiple, pers- multiple perspectives and dichotomies between expressionist and impressionist language, a la the red badge of courage? He's also described its heroic and numb ending, as well as allusions to Ruth Van Winkle. I'm glad that you've heard of Boyd um, not, mm-hmm. not many people have but he is um, well I, I don't know if it's a, he's an exceptional writer but Through the Wheat certainly is an exceptional novel it's pretty um, hardcore yeah <laughs> it's, um, it's it's very powerful mm-hmm. and well as you know uh, it follows a nondescript Marine William Hicks as he's ground down by cumulative exposure to, to combat and in terms of plot that's that's really it but and much of uh, Boyd's novel is composed of empirical documentation, which records you know the details of 
military life, you know, rest, manoeuvres, facing inspection. And in this same kind of neutral reportage, scenes of death and wounding. But those observations are balanced by prose details, um, or by prose, um, which deals with sensation as opposed to perception. And we have you know, wonderful, vivid descriptions of you know, bullets splattering, demanding, screeching for death, and you know the description of the infuriating explosion of artillery, the kaleidoscopic stir of light and colour bludgeoning Hicks's senses. And this all accumulates in the novel's closing sentences where we find this passage. No longer did anything matter, neither the bayonets, the bullets, the barbed wire, the dead, nor the living. The soul of Hicks was numb. I think that's remarkable. It's, it's like a final chord at the end of a mm-hmm. long piece of music. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's very, um, very, very powerful indeed. Now, it's been suggested that this is not an anti-war ending, um, as we might read it as being. Uh, Keith Gandal has put forward the the idea that actually the meritocratic organization of the U.S. Army allowed people like like Hicks uh, and and Boyd to to demonstrate their real quality, you know, to to excel as soldiers. And so Gandal's argument here is that Hicks is actually proud of the fact he's been able to endure all of this, uh, all this horrible stuff that's been happening to him, and that interpretation is more certainly more available in the original ending Hicks had uh, sorry um, Boyd had, had written for Hicks Boyd concluded it originally with Hicks was exalted Gethsemanied now that's that's not quite as successful as uh, you know the soul of Hicks was numb in my view but I think what it suggests is that Hicks has reached an almost transcendental level just through through sheer Endurance and Gandalf makes a good point there, I think. But to me, I, I'd say Boyd's reaching for a more ambiguous conclusion, and that he he enlists Stephen Crane's red badge of courage to to help him do that. So obviously, uh, red badge of courage is a classic civil war novel, and it's a it's a big influence on Through the Wheat in different ways. That dichotomy of documentary and expressive prose is also something that features in The Red Badge of Courage, and I'm pretty sure that's where uh, Boyd sourced his inspiration. But the closing section of Through the Wheat also closely echoes the final passages of The Red Badge of Courage, in which Henry Fleming is acting as a standard bearer. He leads a charge against an enemy position. But rather than just being a simple contrast designed to expose the superfluity of of 19th century heroism in comparison with modern war. uh, Boyd's finale is subtler, I think, in the connections it draws with Crane. See, in Through the Wheat, Hicks drops his rifle in an attack on an enemy position. He then retreats with the rest of his platoon. He's ordered to lead a squad to an advance post uh, then to to provide forewarning about the the counterattack that's expected. Unarmed, Hicks leads his three men towards German lines, and he amazes them by continuing on foot to retrieve his rifle. So there's a parallel with, with Henry Fleming there. Hicks is he's walking in front, unarmed, towards an enemy, and he's indifferent to the bullets flying around him. Now, Henry Fleming in Crane's novel feels he's become a man through his experience. He's someone who, uh, in Crane's words, has trudged from the place of blood and wrath with his soul changed. Note they're both talking about souls being changed. 
Um, Crane's novel is ambiguous in its treatment of this transformation because Henry, you know, lusting after the enemy standard bearer's flag, um, thinks of it as a, a treasure of mythology and he greedily wrenches it from this poor dying man's grasp and that kind of undermines uh, any claims he might have to manly um, and noble conduct. There's no question about Hicks's military record, though. He's proven himself throughout several battles. Um, but like Crane's novel, I think Through the Week closes on a note of ambiguity, because Crane explores the degree of self-delusion in Henry's conception of his bravery without ever wholly discounting the possibility that he's displayed some meritorious conduct under fire. And I think Boyd's work by comparison is weighing up the degree to which Hicks's endurance and longevity are admirable and heroic, while also suggesting he's simply been ground down by the inhumane forces of modern war. And I think Boyd's kind of leaning on the the well-known ambiguity of, of Crane's novel to, to help him explore these ideas here. The parallels between the endings, which are again, you know, strengthened by strengthened by their mutual reference to the protagonist's souls being altered by combat. Yeah, suggest that this is a a deliberate act on on Boyd's part here. But as you mentioned, Boyd also draws on Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle in a scene where Hicks, having fallen asleep in a wood, uh, he's disturbed by nearby artillery fire and and he wakes up and he notices a group of Frenchmen around a field kitchen who somehow remind him of the characters in Rip Van Winkle. When I first read that, I thought, what an odd thing to say. But when I thought about it more, I thought that there there might be some significance here, um, and Boyd's probably playing off, you know, what he, he thinks his audience will know, what, what you know, a general readership will be aware of. And there are again, there are clear parallels between Hicks and the story of Van Winkle. You know, Van Winkle lies down on a green knoll, only to be, you know, roused from his repose by a noise, a mysterious voice calling his name. He then encounters a melancholic, melancholy party of odd-looking people playing nine pins in this weird natural amphitheater and then you know he wakes up 20 years later in time comes back to his old village and he has to adjust to all these changes that have happened in his absence including the revolutionary war hicks likewise lies down in the vicinity of a a green knoll again echoing the exact words and he wakes to discover a strange group of french soldiers and just like the village locals who enlightened the bemused van winkle about the revolutionary war these um, disheartened frenchmen inform Hicks that Soissons has fallen and then Chateau Thierry has been cleared of the enemy. So it's a small detail, but I think invoking Washington Irving's tale set in a Dutch colonial settlement adds an element of contrast between the familiar images of America's past and the, the jarring incursion of modern war. Every so often uh, through the week makes the rounds on uh, rare book catalogs, and um, usually it's described as a pretty... Um, it's a pretty an account that will resonate with readers. On that note, how did Boyd's friendship with F. Scott Fitzgerald, financial insecurity, difficulties with Hollywood, and that turn to communism later alter his Ilbin, Ilbin Dong's writings in the collection Point of Honor and the political Bildungsroman in Time of Peace? Yeah, well, Boyd benefited from his friendship with Fitzgerald, who was instrumental in getting Scribner's to publish through the wheat um if you know if it wasn't for Fitzgerald arguably the novel would never have been published so we, we owe Fitzgerald that but like Fitzgerald 
uh, for for Boyd, uh, personal finance wasn't a strength, um, you know, and he struggled as a fiction writer. Um, although he did have some success as a biographer of historical American figures, but like a lot of writers, including Fitzgerald and William Faulkner, Boyd found himself in Hollywood and basically trying to make money. Uh, he went there in 1932 and he worked on a screenplay that was never produced. Um, so he was a bit disappointed. He was kind of coming to the end of his um, ability to make money as a writer, or certainly his confidence was, was severely dented as you know, a professional author. Um, and it seems the cumulative effects of these disappointments and the fallout of the Depression catalyzed a, a deeper interest in politics. And in 1934, Boyd stood in a, a failed attempt as a Communist Party, party candidate in the Vermont gubernatorial election. I don't know if any of this impacts points of honour um, necessarily, but we do see a, certainly a broadening of material and perspectives in that that book. That's a short story collection, um, also based around the Marines and, and World War One. But whereas we, you know, through the beats about a single Marine, points of honour opens up to explore a whole array of characters and situations. And it's also uh, very well written. But I think we can see through the wheat as an un. Building. So this is a term that um, Randall Stevenson uses to describe the opposite of a Bildungsroman, in which we see you know, a character's education leading to a point of satisfactory stability in Dickens's David Copperfield, for instance. The unbuildings, however, leads to disillusion and, and disaster. It's, it's the opposite of security and stability. And that's what we see in, in Through the Wheat. Um, but in Boyd's final novel, the posthumously published in Time of Peace, and we see a completely different approach. Now, this novel takes up the story of William Hicks in the post-war world. He's working in a factory, engaged to be married. In brief, he enters into a reasonably prosperous career as a journalist, but that job collapses after the crash of 29. He loses his belief that hard work alone can transcend the challenges of life, and he becomes aware of the systematic exploitation of the working classes as well. Partly this is done through the influence of his neighbour, Rolfer, who um, you know, discusses the political processes behind the capitalist market and so on. And beyond this uh, or these discussions, you know, Hicks doesn't really engage in any serious political resistance, but he builds to it. And in the final scene of In Time of Peace, as he did in the war, Hicks comes under fire. But this time, when the police open fire on a crowd picketing a local magnate's factory, Hicks is present at this moment, which I think deliberately parallels the ending of Through the Wheat. And this is what Boyd writes, then the numbness left. So again, numbness referring back to the end of Through the Wheat. Back of the guards stood the police, back of the police stood the politicians, and behind them, the sacred name of property. If it was war again, he was glad to know it. He at least had something to fight for now. So I think we can see this as a proletarian buildings roman. It's not leading to satisfactory stability by any means, but it is a journey where Hicks's development brings his, brings him to a new political commitment. And in doing so, Boyd exemplifies just how varied individual writers can be in their responses to war. We go from a modernist unbuildings novel to a proletarian buildings roman. And uh, just to close on Boyd, he's a slightly tragic figure. He died at 36. He had a faltering career after a brilliant start. 
Um, his death was certainly brought on by complications from poison gas inhalation during the war. So he's in some ways he's kind of a sad figure, but he was a fine writer, and uh, especially as you note in, in Through the Feet. What were the circumstances of F. Scott Fitzgerald's composition of the 1920 The Side of Paradise, his debut novel, and its pre-war worlds, conflicts with preceding generations, and that war by inference? I think there's also more overt passages as well. Yeah, um, Fitzgerald kind of comes to writing The Side of Paradise with a bit of an apprenticeship, I suppose, in literature. He's, He's written for the Triangle Club at Princeton, for the Nassau Literary Review, the Princeton Tiger. But then World War I um, arrives, or certainly his, his partner arrives, He's uh, he joins the army, and at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, he begins a romantic egoist. You know, at this point, we don't know how long the war is going to go on for, and Fitzgerald's anxious that he might die. So you know, he quite frantically puts this um, manuscript together, the romantic egoist being a kind of an early draft of this side of paradise. But of course, Fitzgerald didn't make it overseas. He was awaiting embarkation in Long Island when the armistice was called. But during the war, he did meet Sal Desir in Montgomery, Alabama. So he's in love. He wants to marry. He needs a career. And post-war, he submits his novel twice to Scribner's. It's rejected. And so he's in a kind of desperate situation. He's writing advertising copy in New York while not selling stories to magazines um, as he tries to establish himself as a writer and he makes a bit of a gamble and he comes back to St Paul finishes his novel and third time lucky it's accepted not only is it accepted by Scribner's it's successful so he marries and then the whole jazz age couple thing starts you know Scott and Zelda become notorious for their excessive partying and so on and you know Scott's I suppose in some ways he deserves that reputation his early fiction is um, kind of based around the flapper figure that's a staple of his work and look at the, the the first two titles of his story collections flappers and philosophers and tales of the jazz age so he's kind of in the vanguard of the youth generation and this side of paradise is at the heart of that you know, there's drinking smoking promiscuity rebellion uh, but although youth culture is defined against that of the previous generation, Fitzgerald isn't just repudiating pre-war social standards and criticising the, the previous generation. It's more complicated than that. And his generation is at once pre-war and post-war. So part of this side of paradise is also an elegiac mourning, I think, for the, the perceived pre-war social stability that Amory and his generation have left behind. Uh, Amory talks about his generation emerging bruised and decimated from this Victorian war. And at the close of the novel, there's this you know, set-piece declamation that Fitzgerald has on the war's influence. He writes, and here was a new generation shouting the old cries, learning the old creeds, a new generation dedicated more than the last to the fear of poverty and the worship of success, grown up to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in man shaken. So this is quite grand, um, and you know, it's in some ways it's a point of departure from what's been before. But it, there's also a longing for what's been before, and also cleverly, Fitzgerald subtly presents this as being Amory's view. It's not necessarily Fitzgerald's view or the novel's conclusion. 
you know, we see Amory writing poetry on the war and, and having the kind of callow conversations that undergraduates tend to have. So there's a, a suggestion here that this is Amory's imaginative and emotional reaction that we're getting. And that's, you know, in some ways, um, one of the things that makes the novel successful, um, you know, despite its, its other flaws. The other thing that makes Fitzgerald a good writer or an interesting writer is that he's he's rooted in the 19th century. Well, at the same time, he's a catalyst for and spokesman of the emerging 20th. And I think that's where we get this sophisticated sense of historical time in Fitzgerald. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he's well-placed to write effectively about these things. I don't think, I think the reason we get war by inference here is because Fitzgerald didn't see the war. He didn't have... And he didn't have the experience as a writer to deal with that absence of personal experience successfully. But, um, you know, as, we, as we'll see, he, he gets better at that sort of thing. Why is Fitzgerald's engagement with naturalism important for understanding his socioeconomic, personal, and those Sammy representations of veterans in World War One and May Day, as well as the 1922, The Beautiful and the Damned? What were the financial impulses for his characterization of General Pershing pushing um, in the vegetable? I think, firstly, Fitzgerald's naturalism phase shows how radically his depictions of war change, just like Borden and, and Boyd. You know, he goes from a vital, if slightly messy and callow, first novel in The Side of Paradise to attempting to write in a more serious naturalist vein. Uh, naturalism, with its, its focus on objectivity and how humans are caught in processes out with their control, makes for a shift in the manner of his engagement with the war. It's less about the individual and their imaginative and emotional engagement, and it's more about situating characters within the wider socio-economic landscape. And we see this in Fitzgerald's story, Maydee. It's, it's a long story, kind of approaching uh, a novelette, really. And this um, depicts the drunken antics of some real, real Yale graduates attending a Gamma Psi dance set against the background of the 1919 Mayday riots. We have the narratives of you know the wealthy Philip Dean and his friend Peter Himmel contrasted with their less prosperous classmate Gordon Sterrett, and then beneath that two demobbed soldiers, Gus Rose and Carol Key. So at the bottom of the social scale, Key and Rose, you know, they're described as being ugly and ill-nourished. They're actually placed in an, an uncomfortable state by their status as veterans you know they're they're not sure if we're in their they're going to get their next meal or their next job instead he's kind of in the middle although he went to Yale he loses his job after the war and he's unable to support himself and he's embarrassed to ask his money his family for more money um but uh, you know at the top um Peter Himmel and, and Philip Dean haven't got a care in the world they, they go out partying all night and then have champagne for breakfast so Mayday suggests that the place of veterans in the socio economic hierarchy strongly regulates their post-war lives or certainly makes it easier or more difficult for them to transition to to civilian life. With reference to The Beautiful and Damned, Fitzgerald's second novel, Fitzgerald here is channeling the the naturalist plot of decline where we see characters degenerate physically and socially and morally over extended periods. Anthony Patch, the central character, is a privileged young man He's Harvard educated. He stands to inherit a fortune, but he's essentially lazy. He's an unproductive member of the leisure class, and he turns to drink and begins to lose control of his life. 
And during the war, Anthony's debarment from an officer's training camp because of high blood pressure is a further instance of the debilitating effects of his alcoholism and his inability to function as an effective soldier. It's just another example of his general ineptitude. And it's suggested that Anthony is being carried on by a current of events he can't really control, as if the, the nation's affluence has bred a leisure class that are fit for nothing other than to be marked by the corrosive effects of consumption. And in keeping with naturalist writing, you know, after the war, Anthony makes no reference to his time in the war. There's no in, in, interiority, there's no interior life here. Um, we've left behind that kind of imaginative engagement that we see in the side of paradise. But there is another device that Fitzgerald draws on to conflate Anthony's military record with his personal dissipation. And this is through the use of the word Sami. During World War One, American soldiers were known as Samis, a term drawn from you know, Uncle Sam. And en route to his first training camp, Anthony reads an article in the Shakespeareville, Kansas newspaper concerning a debate in this town about you know, whether they'll call their soldiers Samis or battling Christians. And the name Sammy appears several times in The Beautiful and Damned, firstly in that article, and then in two key forms that are tied to Anthony's failure. There's the character Sammy Carlton. He's this sleazy head of a sales syndicate that's peddling his self-help book, Heart Talks. And, you know, Anthony gets involved in trying to, to sell this book with disastrous consequences. And he gets drunk, ends up incoherently trying to promote this trashy book in a grocery store and he's, he's thrown out. Uh, and Sammy also appears as the name of the the watering hole, Sammy's Bar, where Anthony gets drunk every day. You know, this is the place where we see this Harvard alumnus drinking away every cent of his considerable allowance. And so there's an implicit contrast at work here between Anthony's decline, linked to Sammy Carlton and Sammy's Bar, with the experiences of real Sammy's who actually went to war. And I think that plays an important role in emphasising the naturalist arc of Anthony's dissipation. Uh, lastly, to turn to the the vegetable, what a play that is! Uh, that, that is a truly awful work. <laughs> uh, what a title! Um, this was an embarrassment for Fitzgerald. Um, he had good reason, I suppose, for thinking he could write a good Broadway play. He'd he'd had some success writing for the Triangle Club in in Princeton. But this this didn't work. Um, I suppose no one knows what happens in the vegetable, so I'll quickly summarise it. Uh, in the play, Jerry Frost, a hapless railway clerk, drinks bootleg gin. There's a knock at the door, and he's told he's become president of the United States. So when Jerry's installed in the White House, he's visited by General Pushing, an obvious parody of General Pershing, commander of the Allied uh, the American Expeditionary Forces during World War One. Uh, this general is an absurd figure. He's described as a small fat man with a chest obliterated with medals. And uh, the general announces, I've come um, to say, I'm afraid we've got to have war. Jerry asks, well, who's this war against? And the president says, um, well, that's not decided. We're going to take up the details tonight. It depends how much money is in the treasury. Jerry's desperate to you know, stop being president at this stage. So he, he takes off his outer clothes, makes the general do the same. And then Pushing assumes this boxing pose and they circle around each other while Jerry picks up the general's coat and sword and um, the, the general refuses Jerry's offer of the presidency and he's on the verge of tears. He begs for his garments to be returned, saying, Mr. President, 
I've waited for this war for 40 years. You wouldn't take away my hat like that, just as we've got it almost ready. Now, you can read this as a satire of the, the belligerence demonstrated by the preparedness movement that, you know, you could you could say in part um, spurred America's entry into the war. I'd say this um, character has more to do with Fitzgerald's desire to make money through writing out a hugely successful play. Uh, however, that didn't happen. Um, as discussed, the vegetable had a disastrous opening night, opening night in November 1913, and never recovered. And uh, yeah, it's not among Fitzgerald's better works, but I suppose it still offers an example of the diversity of written forms um, with which he dealt with the war, as well as the different motivations he had for for doing so. Um, it reminds us that writers aren't just wrestling with the epistemological reverberations of, of the conflict. They're sometimes just trying to maintain their, their incomes and their careers. What was the significance of his references to World War I in the 1925 Great Gatsby, including revisions to character war service records across multiple editions of that book, which I wasn't aware of, um, his imaginative interpretations as well as actualities of the war in uh, the 1934 Tender is the Night, and then Fitzgerald's continuing engagement with the war, like in um, the Three Comrades screen adaptation as well as magazine fiction. Mm. Yeah, well, there aren't many concrete details about the war in Gatsby. Uh, we know Nick returns, Nick Carraway returns uh, from the war and finds himself restless. His home in the Midwest seems, you know, rather than being the warm centre of the world, to have become the ragged edge of the universe. So he moves east to Long Island and meets Gatsby. And they realise during their first conversation that they're both veterans. Um, beyond that, there's not much in the way of uh, description about how Gatsby and Nick viewed their war service. Nick makes this enigmatic claim that he enjoyed the war thoroughly, but no more sign about the kind of service he undergoes. Gatsby, however, you know, has emerged from the war as something of, of a hero. He recalls that he, you know, he took two machine gun detachments so far forward during one particular engagement that there was a half mile gap on either side of us when the infantry, uh, where the infantry couldn't advance. And he's been there. You know, he's there apparently for two days and two nights with 136 men with 16 Lewis guns. And then eventually, when the infantry come up, they find the insignia of three German divisions amongst the dead. So, quite a claim. And for his exploits, Gary has, uh, Gatsby has received decorations from all Allied countries, even Little Montenegro. And all this might seem, you know, alongside some of Gatsby's outlandish claims, like being the son of wealthy people in, in the Middle West and having, you know, went through Europe collecting rubies and having been to Oxford and so on. It's just another, it's just another thread in this huge web of lies and exaggeration he spins around himself. But Nick although he might have to restrain his laughter in the face of some of these wild claims, he doesn't doubt Gatsby's war service, which is intriguing. And this might be because of a detail occurring in their first conversation in the 1925 original. So this is at Gatsby's party, and this is, I think, the first conversation they have. Gatsby asks, Nick, weren't you in the first division during the war? Why, yes, I was in the 28th Infantry. Gatsby replies to that, I was in the 16th until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. So this arrangement places Nick and Gatsby in the 1st Division, but in infantry regiments belonging to different brigades. And being in the 1st Division would have given them an unusually long service for 
US soldiers in World War One. But while um, you know both First Division brigades served in the same areas, roughly, the huge size of a division, some 28,000 men, makes a meeting between Nick and Gatsby far from certain. And Fitzgerald must have known this. He was evidently quite a keen um, military historian, and he he made little notes in his copy of the first edition to amend um, the exchange to read as follows. Gatsby, weren't you in the third division during the war? Why, yes, his next reply, I was in the 9th Machine Gun Battalion. Gatsby says, I was in the 7th Infantry until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. So on June 6th, Gatsby's June 6th, 1918, Gatsby's 7th Infantry was deployed to Chateau Thierry where Nick would have been with the 9th Machine Gun Battalion. So Fitzgerald's revision makes Nick and Gatsby coming into sight of each other during the war a more convincing probability. Superficially, it's a slight change, but you think how much has been written and said about the great Gatsby and how much uncertainty and mystery there is in that novel. Fitzgerald's edit was clearly intended to play some kind of role in strengthening at least the military part of Gatsby's backstory. And those edits were incorporated into Malcolm Cowley's edition of The Great Gatsby that came out in 1953, and they were they were retained in um, Matthew Brookley's 1991 version that Cambridge published. So, you know, it's kind of become an established aspect of the novel. But moving on to Tender as the Night, Fitzgerald changes approaches again. Um, this is nine years after The Great Gatsby, that, that this comes out in 1934. But although it's a change, he kind of reverts to something he's done already. He, he goes back to the idea of war or perceptions of war being conditioned by imaginative engagement, um, which we saw in The Side of Paradise, although uh, you know, Tender is undoubtedly a more assured uh, work than Fitzgerald's debut. The influence of the war on Dick Diver um, is, as in the case of Emily Blaine, it's shown largely to be an imaginative construct. During the war, Dick serves in a non-combatant capacity attached to a neurological unit. And he goes off. Uh, well, he goes from laughing off the suggestion that the war damaged him psychologically, to you know, to doubting this years later. And he he confers upon himself the half ironic diagnosis that he may be suffering from non-combatants shell shock. I think that comes from a scene in the book where he wakes up after a a dream, and he's got this idea of non-combatant shell shock, and he writes it down as a form of self-diagnosis almost. Crucially, Fitzgerald adds, Dick never makes up his mind really about whether he's emerged unscathed or not, indicating that you know his, his interpretation sways one way or the other. But certainly he's he's willing to believe that he's been damaged by the war psychologically, even though he didn't participate as a combatant. And part of this changing relationship is constituted by Dick's ongoing attempts to define the war, which add shape and meaning to his feelings towards it. And there's a... a pretty famous passage in the novel where Dick and his friends go to Beaumont Hamel, go to the battlefield there and see the trench complexes that are still are still there. And Dick is full of excitement at this, that the idea of going to this battlefield and he wants to communicate it to his friends. He wants them to, to understand where he's coming from. And this scene is divided between Dick's attempts to communicate or to define his excitement and his friend Abe North's retorts, which deflate uh, the the words of, of Dick and his pronouncing um, what his what he's got to say at this point. Um, and Dick rather grandly announces, "No Europeans will ever 
do that again in this generation. Abe chips in why they've only just quit over in Turkey and in Morocco. Then Dick resumes, that's different. This Western Front business couldn't be done again, not for a long time. Why? This was a love battle. There was a century of middle-class love spent here. This was the last love battle. All my beautiful, lovely, safe world blew itself up here with a great gust of high explosive love. So rather grand, um, gets gets the word love in there quite a bit. And um, Abe cuts in saying, you want to hand this battle over to D.H. Lawrence. You know, he's he's had enough of this um, slightly indulgent um, sort of passage that um, Dick's been been going through here um, and perhaps realises through that you know comparison to Lawrence that there's something creative happening here. So these statements about the war's effect on Hibbin's generation, they're not impartial assessments. Um, and Dick, like Anthony Patch, is an alcoholic. He's gradually losing control over his life. And so in this speech and in other parts of the novel, we can see Dick, I think, trying to find excuses for his downfall as someone cut off from the sureties of the pre-war era as someone psychologically wounded by non-combatants, shell shock. So these ideas, I think, have as much to say about Dick's ways to rationalise his decline as, as, as they, they do about um, the historic or historical impact of World War One on his generation. But um, Tender as a Night wasn't the success Cheryl had hoped for. It didn't resurrect his career critically or financially. And like Boyd, he ended up in Hollywood, where he was a little more successful. Certainly, he was able to earn more money, although he only earned one screen credit for his adaptation of Eric Maria Remarque's Free Comrades, which, um, which came out in 1938, which was quite successful, I think. I can't cover all the stories, um, but it's fair to say by this point in his career, the days of Fitzgerald picking up $4,000 a time from the Saturday Evening Post were, were far behind. Instead, he was selling stories for three hundred dollars uh, each to a Squire magazine, um, and he'd come up with a series about Pat Hobby, a kind of has-been um, scriptwriter. And in one of these old timers, two old timers, which was published a few months after Fitzgerald's death, this Pat Hobby character encounters a faded Hollywood actor, Phil Macedon, and they get into a bit of a brawl for drunk and disorderly conduct, and they're in this police station and. Macedon is thanked by the sergeant present for his role in the war film The Final Push. He says this helped his wife understand his war experience. Now, the, the reason that Macedon and Hobby have fallen out is because Macedon claims not to remember Hobby from the days they worked together in the movie industry. But, you know, Pat Hobby is convinced Macedon does know him. And so he brings up this um, scene or this, this event that, that he was present at, um, which is a uh, when a key scene in the final push was was filmed. And Hobby reveals that Macedon was actually shoved by the director into a hole that had been dug on the film set, and it was the actor's tantrums, not his acting, that made it into the film. And in a letter to Esquire editor Arnold Gringrich, Fitzgerald revealed this was how a key scene of the 1925 silent World War I film The Big Parade was created. He writes, that's the way The Big Parade was really made. King Vidor pushed John Gilbert into a hole. And in 1931, Fitzgerald went to a Sunday afternoon party at Irving Falberg's house, and he he embarrassed himself by singing this supposedly humorous song that, that failed miserably, and he was booed by John Gilbert and then asked to leave. 
Um, so in, in Two Old Timers, this fictitious film, The Big Push, becomes an alternative title for The Big Parade. And Phil Maston becomes, um, becomes a kind of disguised portrait of Gilbert. Fitzgerald's getting his revenge a little bit here. So in writing about the filming of The Big Parade, Fitzgerald's reflections on the war get caught up in Hollywood and the mass market magazine fiction he's writing to pay the bills and his own personal resentment. So it's quite an intriguing example of how the war is is refracted and reformulated in sometimes surprising ways. And surveying Fitzgerald's career in this way, I think it foregrounds the reality that his reaction to World War I, it just can't be wholly categorised as being conditioned by one stimulus or viewpoint. You know, his um, writing actually is perhaps characterised by a refusal to uh, to present the war in simplistic terms. You know, we have this subjective subjectively conditioned perspectives in The Side of Paradise, Intended as Night. We have a complete absence of character interiority in The Beautiful, The Damned. There's the ambiguous treatment of the war in The Great Gatsby and so on. So I think all this adds together to imply that for Fitzgerald, the war was an irreducibly complex phenomenon. In the 1924 Plumes, leg amputee and veteran Lawrence Stallings examined the plight of disabled veterans and condemned the war as well as the U.S. socioeconomic system, all in the context of Woodrow Wilson's ailing health and preparations for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So in this context, how did financial security and his engagement with Hollywood, thanks to the theatrical success of What Price Glory, shape the big parade screenplay which you've already alluded to? What uh, the his treatment of what price glory and Stallings' subsequent short stories, and if you can uh, briefly address that debate between Malcolm Cowley and Archibald McClesh over Stallings' uh, first World War photographic history published in 1933, including the visual chronology of World War One causes devastation and adumbration of another worldwide conflict. Sure. So Stallings offered the war novel Plumes in 1924, and then he co-authored the popular play, What Price Glory, that was uh, performed the same year. It was very successful, and so Stallings was essentially headhunted by King Vidor for a script idea for The Big Parade, which came out in 25. It was one of the most you know, successful films of the silent era. Um, so, you know, he, Stallings was certainly on a run um, in, in those years, in the mid-1920s. But there, the plot outline that he supplied became heavily edited and overlaid by inputs from other people, uh, as was common in, in the studio system at the time. But the, the colossal success of the Big Parade occasioned a screen adaptation of What Price Glory, which was directed by Rule Walsh. And overall, while it doesn't shy away from showing the psychological and physical toil of war, the What Price Glory film represents... World War One service in a more positive light, I think, than the Big Parade. Moreover, the Walsh adaptation recasts um, the the play. You know, the the film's two battle scenes focus on shots of soldiers marching, and in the second of these battle scenes, we see the Marines they obtain their objective without the Germans ever seriously impeding their progress. They just you know kind of melt away, and so there's no sense, as there is in the play, of real chaos or hopelessness. Um, but these changes um, happen through adaptation. That's essentially the bargain that's struck with Hollywood. You know, offers can make money there by working as scriptwriters or by selling the rights to their work, but they have to surrender creative autonomy. And perhaps as a, a result of his huge mid 20s success, or maybe just as a process of aging in general, installing his short stories, 
he begins to look at other aspects of war service, such as comradeship, loyalty, and so on. And we see that in stories like The Big Parade, Esprit de Corps, and The Veil of Tears, which um, was published in 1931. And it's another excellent long-form short story. But in 1933, as you say, Stallings ventured into yet another medium. This time, it was an anthology of photographs that he edited under the title of The First World War, A Photographic History. In the foreword he provided, Stallings avoids making any definite claims for the significance of these photographs. Many of these pictures, he writes, hold a secret as securely as the dead holds theirs. Who, looking at them, he asks, can give the riddle of them? So the the collection progresses in loose chronological order from the pre-war arms race between the European powers to images of documents listing death tolls of the belligerent nations. And the images are accompanied by captions which range from merely clarifying what each picture represents to wryly ironic statements contrasting with that image. For instance, there's one uh, with the caption name, rank, regiment, number, which is accompanied by uh, which accompanies two bloody images of, of corpses massed together on the ground. So, you know, the, the specificity of the question quite effectively juxtaposing the anonymity of the dead there. But following this publication, there was a debate between Archibald MacLeish and Malcolm Cowley in the New Republic magazine. Uh, responding to the well, predominantly anti-war tone of Stallings' collection, MacLeish protested that World War One was a War of parades, speeches, brass bands, bistro, boredom, terror, anguish, heroism, humour, death, and so on. It had its fine sights and its unspeakable sights. So he protests that uh, Stallings' chosen photographs did not capture the true multidimensionality of the war. Instead, he feels that Stallings is focusing on you know, the particular social and intellectual fashions of the day, resulting in a propagandistic invective against the war. In his, in his reply to the article, Cowley argued that, on the contrary, rather than being swayed by some anti-war vogue, Stallings' collection reflected the truth of World War I, that you know, their relatives who died or who crashed in planes or were crippled, they, they fought in vain. And if you think about the title here, it seems that's the kind of tone Stallings is going for. It's, this collection is called The First World War, and it comes out in 1933, at a time where there has been no Second World War. So... Stalling seems um, pretty sure of the, the direction things are going in. But this collection, which does present a negative impression of world leaders of constantly steering their people towards conflict, um, although it includes more positive aspects of war, it's it's kind of interesting that he he's doing this at the same time as in his stories he's exploring more redemptive aspects of war service like pride, camaraderie, and humour. So perhaps those redemptive aspects of war service were more evident in narratives dealing with small groups of servicemen. Maybe they weren't so prominent when Stallings' perspective shifted from the personal to historical. Um, and so while you know, Stallings' war writing certainly changes, the First World War collection demonstrates that his views on the war were, were always complex, accommodating you know, a fatalism and at the same time a recognition of more agreeable aspects of military service. On that note, 30 years later, how and why did Stallings' publication of the Doughboys, the story of the AEF, represent his embrace of nostalgia, memory, and self-commendation for an extolment of the war and the American Expeditionary Force? Yeah, it's a curious book, the Doughboys. Um, so in 1963, 
This is four, nearly four decades after Plumes. Uh, Stallings brought out the Doughboys, the history of the AEF 1917-18, history of you know, America's involvement in the war. Um, and contrasting Plumes and, and the Doughboys demonstrates just how substantially his attitude towards war had changed by the time Stallings was you know, in his seventh decade. Uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, he had been acknowledging more redemptive aspects of war service, like comradeship and loyalty. But in the Doughboys, he, he you know he skips into the next field. He's in another gear altogether. This is um, complete unadulterated nostalgia and celebration of martial prowess. Um, in the prologue, he probes the reason why he's went back to, to write about the war. And he says, I chose to walk among these buddies of the past so that they may be remembered. There never was an official history of them. No anthologist has brought back the full savour of their ignorance, of their valour, of their ultimate skill. So that's worlds away from the tone of plumes, which finds nothing uh, to commend in its post-war retrospective analysis. So clearly Stallings has significantly revised or extended his opinions of, of the war. And we see this in the way he talks about military engagements. Um, you know, He writes about one of the first... Um, engagements in April 1918 as something like saloon brawls where all belligerents were armed with rifles, pistols and bayonets, no holds barred and no police to interfere. The Yankees went in to the business as if to a clam bake. So the do- in the Doughboys, the register of Stallings' language has changed significantly. It's now celebrating the, the martial virility of the AEF um, you know, for instance, when I, as a colonel who's hospitalised with a shoulder wound, Stallings, you know, writes that he stopped one in the shoulder. On another occasion, you know, there's an account of the first division taking an objective in the Soissons region with the glinting steel. So we've got two days of violent, brutal fighting, just reduced to this image of the, of the bayonet. So it's really a dramatic revision of the outlook from his de- debut novel. And when you add that to you know what we've we've seen from Wharton Boyd. And if it's Gerald, you can begin to see a pattern developing in terms of just um, how varied th- these responses are. Dobbs was published 30 years after the pho- photographic uh, history and then 40 years after uh, Plumes, just to clarify. Oh, um, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, no, that's just for me. Um, so um, to conclude our podcast, let's dive in, of course, to er- into Ernest Hemingway. Less than a month into his engagement in World War I, Ernest Hemingway was wounded by trench mortar and machine gun fire. In this context, what were Hemingway's initial reactions to these injuries and his status as a veteran, um, while only obliquely referencing the war as an influence on characters? And why did he depict his generation as not uniquely lost in, uh, in, in the 1925 collection Our Time, as well as The Sun Also Rises? And he even edited the final book version of a fair, uh, farewell to arms, um, including the classical cover. Why, what were the edits? How is this uh, latter novel, the farewell to arms reimagined by Hollywood as a background event or as an adventure? Yeah. Well, having, we gave up uh, jobs as a cub reporter on the Kansas city star to volunteer with the American red cross in Italy, but his service was actually quite limited on, you know, on July 6th, he travels to Shio, which is, 250 kilometers west of Milan. By the close of the month, he'd volunteered to serve at a Red Cross canteen at Fasalta on the Piave River. And there on July 8th, Hemingway was wounded in the legs by trench mortar and machine gun fire. 
He then he's in a, a hospital in Milan. He returns briefly to the front for the last Italian offensive of the war on October 24th. But then, uh, you know, an attack of jaundice set in and he was sent back to the hospital on November 1st. So that's it. It's a matter of weeks. But an awful lot has been written about this short period. And in the immediate aftermath of his wounding, uh, written accounts by Hemingway and others you know, began to produce varying interpretations of, of what had happened. Um, but whatever did happen that day, whether or not he did uh, carry a, a wounded Italian to safety despite having all this shrapnel in his legs or not, um, Hemingway's comments in the aftermath don't convey any sense of horror or disillusion. Quite the opposite. In fact, Hemingway writes that he's anxious to get back to the front and he speaks excitedly of seeing the Germans completely smashed. So there's a a sense of almost callow glee in the adventure of it all. Uh, and although that, that doesn't conform with the kind of lost generation thesis of the war being uh, horrible and spreading pervasive trauma through throughout its participants, it is consistent with the attitudes that Hemingway maintained throughout his life. And that was that the war, you know, at least was not wholly negative. And to address the idea of um, the war having an oblique presence in some of these texts, in A Movable Feast in 1964, Hemingway recounts the story of how Gertrude Stein had insisted to him that his was a lost generation. Hemingway immortalised this phrase by using it as the first epigraph of his novel The Sun Also Rises. But he also countered Stein's phrase with a quote from Ecclesiastes, and he used this as the second epigraph to The Sun Also Rises. And it contains these beautiful lines, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever, the sun also ariseth. So as opposed to being afflicted by some pervasive post-war trauma, this Ecclesiastes excerpt proposes a more complicated relationship between World War I and Hemingway's generation, you know, implying that it's in, in no way unique in its, its suffering. And I think that's why we see the war as an oblique presence in, in our time and the sun also rises. The war is certainly an influence and a major one, but it's not, Hemingway seems to be saying, the determining influence. Stylistically also, Hemingway's strength is to imply emotion through description of observed reality, and that deft use of implication is what makes him an accessible and powerful author. So to explicitly present some kind of thesis, such as the war creating generational traumas, is incongruous to his style. But like Boyd and Fitzgerald, Hemingway was a Scribner's author. And having secured Hemingway, Scribner's had to think, well, how, how do we market The Sun Also Rises? You know, Scribner's was a highly successful uh, publishing house that had many distinguished authors on its it's books like Henry James and Edith Wharton. So how do they advertise Hemingway's experimental prose with for these scenes of debauched expatriates that are you know, drinking too much and fighting each other? So we return to this idea of literature of quality discussed earlier. And one influential decision taken by editor Maxwell Perkins was to associate Hemingway's works with images that recalled ancient Greece and Rome to connect Hemingway's work with a long tradition of Western culture. So for the dust jacket, Perkins chose this loosely draped classical figure um, created by the artist Cleon, the, the pen name of Cleonike Demianikis Wilkins, 
which I may not have pronounced correctly. But Cleon's figure um, is a female holding an apple, suggesting the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which it's implied this you know dejected figure has sampled. Now, this is brilliant. In this stroke, Perkins has found an image which simultaneously conveys the work's themes of sensuality and dissipation, but it cancels any suggestion of impropriety by embedding those qualities within Christian and classical traditions. So Hemingway's novel, dealing with the aftermath of the First World War, was thus marketed as being continuous with, rather than antithetical to, existing cultural norms. Very clever. And this also reinforces Hemingway's suggestion that his generation is not uniquely lost by the war, but it's, it's participating in wider cycles of generational decay and renewal. And much the same thing happened with A Farewell to Arms. You know, Perkins insisted on a further Cleon image from the dust jacket. Um, this time, the artwork was adapted from Botticelli's Venus and Mars. So, like the Sun Also Rises cover, classical figures are used here, uh, here based on a Renaissance composition. And that allays, perhaps allays in some ways, the potentially shocking elements of Hemingway's novel, associating A Farewell to Arms with established and respected cultural traditions. And A Farewell to Arms was successful. And the novel would earn Hemingway um, you know, quite a bit of money, but it would earn him a little bit more through the film adaptations that were made. Um, Lauren Stallings did a, a theatrical adaptation of it, which it didn't do so well. But when this was sold to Paramount Studios, where um, mon money was made by Stallings and Hemingway, and this resulted in the 1932 adaptation directed by Frank Borsage, starring Gary Cooper and Helen Hayes. And several changes were made to the storyline for the movie. But I think most importantly, the change that happens is the war in the 32 adaptation isn't really an important subject in the movie. It's more of an incidental backdrop to the romance between Frederick and Catherine Barclay. And the film was reimagined again in the 1957 adaptation with Rock Hudson. This adaptation, by contrast, is dominated by the emotional appeal of, of spectacle, you know, quite apart from the, the, the tragedy in the novel. You know, for example, there's one sequence contrived for the film where Frederick, this has nothing to do with the novel, it serves no purpose. He scales a mountain ridge to examine some enemy positions. He descends in a cable car only to elude all the, the barrage of artillery fire and um, you know, bullets that are being directed at him, which is just, you know, nonsense, really. That's kind of more in the, the realm of... You know, trashy action movie than um, in high literature. Um, and so what happens here is we've moved to, to such an extreme point where the 57 adaptation is actually celebrating the idea of war as a heroic adventure, which is something Hemingway's novel kind of comprehensively negates. So finally, please address Hemingway's writings on veterans in Who Murdered the Vets and the 1937 to Have and Have Not as well as his multifaceted aims to project an authoritative persona as a World War I vet, and his introduction to the uh, 1942 Men at War, um, the preface to the 1948 edition of A Farewell to Arms, um, that unpublished version of Garden of Eden, as well as explicit references to wartime experiences and across the river and into the trees. And if you can, um, to conclude, briefly address his uh, somewhat didactic lectures, or at least lectures, on war to F. Scott Fitzgerald in the posthumous uh, movable feast. Yeah, certainly. There, there's quite a bit there, Ryan. Um, I think <laughs> those points can probably be well covered by looking at the general trend that occurs in, in Hemingway's writing, fictional and non-fictional, as he ages. 
And that's a tendency to become a little bit more judgmental and heavy-handed. He always had an ego. He was always confident. But I think as he became more successful, that ego increasingly overwhelmed his sense of artistic discipline to the extent that he was just simply cruel or self-indulgent when he could have been writing about more interesting things. And in fact, you know, the introduction to the Men at War anthology, the preface to the 48, A Farewell to Arms, and Across the River and Into the Trees, and Movable Feast, they're all strewn and undermined with, I would say, embarrassing examples of self-aggrandizement and gratuitous pejorative. Now, for example, in the Men at War intro, right, he castigates Skyempe's 1917 World War I memoir over the top, calls it a mug's eye view of trench warfare and a pitiful piece of bravado. He also slates John Dos Passos's Three Soldiers, calling it unreadable. And he even has a go at War and Peace, right, with, with no sense of irony, claiming that uh, Tolstoy's ponderous and messianic thinking was no better than many another evangelical professor of history. So we can see this unfortunate tendency in the late Hemingway, but that's not the, the full story by any means. As you alluded there, he did have a social conscience and he was outraged when in September 1935, a group of veterans stations at, stationed at Matakumi Key, near Hemingway's Key West home, were caught in a severe hurricane and a lot of them died. And they'd been placed there by the Roosevelt administration to work as road builders. Hemingway visited the region in the aftermath, you know, and he saw the, the bloated corpses of these veterans rotting in the trees. And enraged, you know, he, he wrote an article for the masses in which he, you know, quite rightly, he questioned who sent nearly a thousand war veterans to live in frame shacks on the Florida Keys in the hurricane months. And the issue of, of these veterans being sent to the Florida Keys comes up in his 1937 novel, To Have and Have Not. Part of the have and have not divide in that novel is exemplified by war veterans who've been sent to the Keys by the government. Um, it's not a big part of the novel by any means, but I think the, the image of veterans eagerly drinking their meagre wages and then bloodying one another in fistfights in Freddy's bar rather tragically emphasises um, this aspect of the novel's concern with socio-economic disparity. And Hemingway's decision to revisit the Key West veterans in the novel. It doesn't amount to an endorsement of left wing or revolutionary politi politics. However, um, in fact, the protagonist, Harry Morgan, is actually killed smuggling back Cuban revolutionaries after they rob a Key West bank. So the novel falls short of endorsing one side, but the masses article and have and have not certainly showcase another facet to Hemingway's engagement with the war. Um, but despite its less charming aspects. Um, the Men at War introduction also contains more reflective comments on the war, particularly Hemingway's admission that as they get further and further away from a war they've taken part in, all men have a tendency to make it more as they wish it had been rather than how it really was. And for Hemingway making the war more as he wished involved emphasising the extent of his military service for one and voicing increasingly judgmental observations on war and war writing. At the same time, however, he acknowledges the temporal mutability of individuals' war memory, thereby displaying a marked degree of emotional maturity, albeit uh, while at the same time succumbing to the retrospective process of redefinition that he identifies in veterans more generally. And all of these threads kind of come together in a movable feast, which was published posthumously in 1964. 
particularly in an episode concerning F. Scott Fitzgerald. Hemingway recalls talking to Fitzgerald in a cafe, and according to Hemingway, they were discussing the Napoleonic campaigns, which Scott hadn't studied. Moving on to the Great War, Hemingway then tells Fitzgerald some stories of the mutinies in the French army after the Nivelle Offensive. And he writes, Scott was passionately interested in the war of 1914 to 18. And these stories of the war as it actually was were shocking to him. Although Hemingway wasn't in in France either, it's, it's worth noting at that time. So here Hemingway recasts himself in a schoolmasterly role. He's a military expert instructing his keen but inexperienced pupil. And after Fitzgerald leaves, Hemingway's son Bumby asks him, war is not simple either, is it, Papa? And Hemingway replies in the negative, no, very complicated. And he repeats that again, it's very complicated. So in this exchange, we find Hemingway, as um, as he did when he was scoffing at Gertrude Stein's idea of a lost generation, presenting himself as the sensible one, you know, the hardworking writer, the, the young professional author and war veteran. Well, people like Stein and Fitzgerald are indulgent or are, they're drunks, but he's a dedicated literary craftsman keeping hunger from the door with his pen. And that's not quite true. Um, you know, his wife Hadley had at least some private income. So on the one hand, he's being thoughtful about the war in disdaining the lost generation myth, but he's also trying to manage perception of his authorial persona. And yet he's perhaps not quite self-aware enough to perceive just how heavy-handed and nostalgic he's being in a movable feast. But Hemingway is a great example, um, therefore, of the need to study authors in the round before commenting on, on how they react to the war. Because as we see, there's just such a myriad of motivations for commenting on the war, an array of complex reactions displayed within individual texts, and this all shifts over time. And I think that um, you know just just highlights the importance of taking a taking a more wide range view and casting the net wider when it comes to commenting on the the connections between war and literature. And thank you for your uh, critical and um, complex assessment of the authors today. Um, I have a one last question. I know you you have an edited volume on uh, Scottish literature in World War One as well. Uh, what's going on with you next? Can you disclose any future projects? Uh, yes, well, I'm I, I'm certainly working on some things, and we're we're hopeful that uh, they'll see the light soon. Um, I'm working on a composite biography of F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I'm co-editing. Um, we've got some some exciting contributors there, just just trying to get things finalised with the publisher. And in addition to that, I have um, been commissioned to write a biography of the Scottish surgeon Sir Alexander Ogston. 1844 to 1928. Um, I don't need to tell you about him. He had a, you, you can buy the book to find out about him. But he mm-hmm. uh, he was at the Villa Trento Hospital in northeastern Italy during World War One, which is the um, the hospital that Hemingway based his depiction of the British hospital around. So that was how I got um, you know kind of got down led down that path. So yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to working more on those. And thank you for asking. So. Uh, thank you for being on the show today, Dr. Rennie. The uh, book is American Writers and World War One, published uh, less than a year ago by Oxford University Press. This has been a production of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp, for New Books in History, 
Please tune in next time.